today we are picking up on a um, sermon series that we started right after Easter. A sermon series that's looking at what the early church looked like and how the early church managed to come alive and thrive in a time that was really disconcerting, uh, in a time that was oppressive, in a time where they were dealing with rules that they didn't know how to navigate because all the rules had changed. Jesus was dead and now he was alive. And so we've been looking at what it looked like for the church to thrive in those early years to consider for ourselves, what does it mean for the church to thrive now? When we come to our scripture passage for today, um, which comes out of Acts chapter 17, we are catching Paul and his friends um, sort of in the middle of a chase. Paul and Timothy and Silas, they had been in Thessalonica Before this, there were a group of people in Thessalonica who were not really liking what they were saying. And so they started to create these uproars, these little riots in the towns where Paul and his friends would be. And so, you know, the believers in Jesus Christ were moving Paul and his friends around and around and around. And finally, they move Paul to Athens. So Paul, when we come to our scripture today, is in Athens, and he's, he, he really has nothing to do. He's waiting for Timothy and Silas to come and join him so that he can start that ministry fully. But, you know, Paul doesn't sit still very easily. And so that's what we're finding today as we come to our scripture. This is Acts 17, verses 16 through 28. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was deeply distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he argued in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and also in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Also, some Epicurean and Stoic philosophers debated with him. Some said, what does this babbler want to say? Others said, he seems to be a proclaimer of foreign divinities. This was because he was telling the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. So they took him and brought him to the Areopagus and asked him, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? It sounds rather strange to us. And so we would like to know what it means. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners living there would spend their time in nothing but telling or hearing something new. Then Paul stood in front of the Areopagus and said, Athenians, I see how extremely religious you are in every way. For as I went through the city and looked carefully at the objects of your worship, I found among them an altar with the inscription to an unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, he who is Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in shrines made by human hands, nor is he served served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mortals life and breath and all things." From one ancestor, he made all nations to inhabit the whole earth, and he allotted the times of their existence and the boundaries of the places where they would live so that they would search for God and perhaps grope for him and find him, 
though indeed he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we too are his offspring. Friends, if you will, please join me as we pray. God, it is by your hope that we come to you in worship today, a hope that we will see your face a little bit more clearly, a hope that we will know your heart more fully, a hope that we will be people who are motivated by this new reality that you have given to us, a reality that affirms that death is not the end, that life overcomes everything, not just the easy everythings, but the hard everythings too. And so we pray, God, that you will speak to us in wisdom and that we will hear your voice clearly. So we pray in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. When I was in elementary school, I spent a lot of my time being bored. I would play inside for a while and then I would move to the backyard and play there for a while and then I would move to the front yard hoping to find some neighbor kid to play with in the street and then pretty soon the cycle would start itself all over again. On the days where it was too hot to play outside, which was often in the summertime, I would usually end up in my bedroom putting myself in the way of the air conditioning vents, lying on my bed, and just stare at the ceiling fan as it went around. I found that it's pretty amazing how many games you can play with a ceiling fan. I would choose one blade and I would follow it with my eyes. And then I would just choose a a place where I would look and count how many times all the blades would go by before I got myself to stumble. And sometimes I would try to start with one blade and follow it for a full rotation before I would skip to the blade behind it and follow it for a full rotation. There's a lot of games that you can play with a ceiling fan. And you know what? There's three, three levels. There's the low and the medium and the high speed. So you can really train yourself to get good at it. I also found myself staring at the ceiling fan when I was trying to fall asleep at night. Only for the fact that I couldn't really see anything else in the dark. That fan would often be my point of focus as I thought back throughout my day or as I dreamed about what tomorrow would be or as I just let my imagination run for a bit. It's not like I ever set out to spend any time with that fan. It's not like I really ever noticed it any other time. Like most inanimate objects, it was just there. But over time... That fan had unconsciously become a part of my daily ritual. So years later, when I was in high school, a friend had suggested that I read the book, The Screwtape Letters by C.S. Lewis. It's this short little book of fictional letters that are written from the perspective of two devils as they tend to their patients, the patients being just everyday people in an everyday world. And so one day I was reading this book while I was sitting on my bed and I came to this part in the book where 
In giving advice to a young devil, the experienced devil starts to lament that the young devil's patient had become a Christian. But the experienced devil assures the younger one that there's still plenty of work to be done, largely by misdirecting the Christian's attention during prayer, which would then cause the Christian to pray more toward his own limited understanding than praying to the true infinite God. C.S. Lewis, he puts the words this way. And this is what the senior devil is saying to the junior devil. He's giving this advice saying, if you examine the object to which your patient, the Christian is praying, you will find that that object he's praying to is really a composite object containing many quite ridiculous ingredients like a mashup of images from classical paintings of Jesus and Sunday school images of God and the Christian's own feelings of charity, of courage. The devil then goes on saying, I have known cases where the patient, what the patient called his God was actually located, located up and to the left in the corner of the bedroom ceiling or located inside his own head or located on a crucifix that's on the wall. But whatever the nature is of the composite object that your patient prays to, you must keep him praying to it, to the thing that he has made, not to the one who has made him. I remember reading that and sort of chuckling to myself how funny it could be to pray to the corner of your bedroom wall. And so I leaned back to think about that idea and my eyes landed on my ceiling fan. And it so happens that the first conscious thing that I learned for myself about who God is, is that God was not my ceiling fan. It was that God was never going to be anything that I could fully understand and comprehend. In our passage for today, Paul is looking around to Athens and he finds all of these statues dotted all around the city, idols that were born out of people's own understanding, idols that were 100% crafted by human talent. He finds these multiple locations where people would come and they would deposit their fears and their dreams and their hopes at the feet of these idols. I love how the scripture says that he goes to each and every one of them and reads them carefully until he comes to a place with an altar, but with no idol. In our scripture, Paul, he doesn't waste his time addressing what the Athenians already know and believe to be true. He doesn't put any energy into discrediting anything, into correcting anything, into rectifying anything. Instead, he only directs their attention to what they don't know, what they don't talk about, to what they haven't imagined. And he says this, he says, concerning this thing, 
that you worship that is unknown concerning this particular altar, I want to talk to you about that. Because this altar to the unknown is really an altar for the God who created you and me and the whole world that we occupy and everything in it, including those idols that you worship. That God of the unknown, Paul says, made it so that we would long for and search for this God and search for the unknown. And even if it feels like we are groping to find God, it turns out that God is not far from each of us because we are all made by God. All of us are offspring of the divine. And that last line there, in that last line, Paul is quoting the third century ancient poet Aratus who pens for we too are his offspring, but he didn't pen it for the unknown God. He said it about Zeus, the most powerful God of the Greeks. And so in doing that, in quoting that poem, Paul is bringing together what they already know with the thing that they have never considered, bringing together what they can imagine and what they have never imagined, tying their understanding of being offspring to the most powerful of the Greek gods with the words in that first chapter of Genesis that declare that all of humanity is made in the image of God and tying it together with what Jesus affirmed to the original disciples that the kingdom of God is within us. Paul doesn't need to refute what the Athenians already know because the unknown God is in all that they know already. That unknown God is in all that they know and then some. God, it turns out, was so much more and there was so much more that he could tell them beyond what they already knew. It's one of my favorite passages in scripture. Maybe because God was unknown to me for so long. It's a strange paradox how God can be ingrained into our being and yet also feel so removed from us. It's strange how one minute we can feel like we totally get what God is doing. And then the next moment feel like we will never understand God at all. I think that's why so many over the years have made it their life's work to push and assert certainties about God to the point of making their certainties the litmus test for what it means to believe in God. There are books upon books. There are preachers upon preachers and there are teachers upon teachers who make a living on assuring people about things that we must know for certain about God. People who spend hours 
painstakingly correcting and repudiating and rectifying what others understand to be true. These are the ones who look at scripture's declaration that God is love and immediately try and, to, and decide who it is that God loves and really by how much. And are there limits to that love? And where is the point where love gives way to anger or love includes anger? These are the ones whom you meet who are absolutely certain about everything when it comes to God. I've said it before, I'll say it again. These kind of people make me really nervous. Not because it's not important to question and wonder about who God is and how God works. That is important. But because of their drive to know for certain and to fully understand and encapsulate who God is. It makes me nervous because we do not follow a God that we completely understand. We follow the unknown God. I remember once listening in on a conversation between a youth pastor and a youth. I myself was young. Grr. The youth was saying, well, I know who God is in that typical certainty. I know who God is. God is love. And the youth pastor said, yeah, God is love, but love isn't God. And something about that made sense to me. God is love, but love isn't God because God is all love and more. God is justice, but justice isn't God because God is all of justice and more. We can be certain that God is love, absolutely sure. But there is so much that is unknown in just that statement alone. We can be absolutely certain about God's justice, absolutely. But there is so much that is impossible for us to mentally grasp what that means in it being true. Something that strikes me about the early church is that there was very little in the lives of those first believers that was certain. <laughs> in fact, there was little in their lives at that point in time that they had any understanding of at all. The guy that they had followed for three years, their best friend had died. They were mourning him. And then all of a sudden he was out of the ground. They thought that he was gone. They didn't quite recognize him, but he kept on showing up in their, in their rooms where their doors were locked. And then he kept showing up on the road to strangers who had never met him before. And then he kept showing up and cooked them breakfast. After that, they saw this guy go up into the sky. And I think it's safe to say that at that point in time, absolutely everything that they felt like they could understand was torn to shreds. The moments 
where these early believers encountered God the most, it turns out, were in the moments where they completely abandoned their own understanding. Their understanding that death was the end of life, their understanding that gravity kept people on the ground, their understanding that they could know someone and not recognize someone. It was when they chose to abandon their own understanding that they encountered God in the most vibrant of ways. The early church spent so much of its time waiting in the waters of the unknown, unsure of what they would encounter, but even more than that, unsure of what was going to encounter them. And so friends, it makes me ask the question, do we occupy ourselves with what we don't know with the same fervor as those people in the early church? Do we spend our time mostly talking about the things that we have always known are certain? Or do we spend our time actively abandoning our own understanding and the hope that what we will find is God? We laugh at those Athenians who would bring these offerings to statues that they themselves made and then bow down to it, convinced somehow that the statue would tend to their worries and their fears and would listen to their hopes and to their dreams. But I have to tell you, friends, we are not all that different from those Athenians when it gets down to it. Because we too have locations around our city, around our lives, where we come to deposit our fears and our dreams, expecting that they will take care of them. They just don't happen to be statues. Their retirement funds, their degrees on our walls, their paychecks in our account, their careers and reputations. We place so much at the feet of these things, hoping that somehow they will secure us. But friends, they are just idols made by our own hands. Because God is not prestige and God is not money. God is not financial security. I know that for certain, just as I know that God is not a ceiling fan. God is nothing that we can fully understand, even though we know that God is in our being. I'm going to leave us with an opportunity. Hopefully you've been taking these opportunities the last couple of weeks. I, in fact, I know many of you have. We've talked about taking the opportunity to consider our calling, to respond to God's calling, to not be passive, but to be great. We have talked about how we might be able to call a friend or talk to our quarantine buddy about 
some place, some moment in time where we just knew that it was God acting in our lives? I want us to ask ourselves this week, how much time do we spend just talking about things that we already know? I got to tell you, I watch the news most nights and uh, those people are just talking about things they already know most of the time. That's why we call them talking heads, I guess. How much time do you and I spend talking about the things we already know just so that we can feel certain about ourselves, just so that we could feel confident and comfortable just so that we don't have to concern ourselves with the mystery of the unknown. How much time do we spend talking about the things that we already know? And can we catch ourselves doing it this week? And when we find ourselves talking about the certainties that we have, would you be willing to join me in abandoning them? And in just spending a little bit of time considering what we don't know? the unknown, the things that others might know that we do not. This week, let's take a little bit of time to consider the things that might overwhelm us, to consider the things that might take us over. And perhaps we will find that we have just walked right into that unknown God.